0: Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Jean Sheehan, author of the book American Democracy in Crisis The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government, published this year, 2021, by Palgrave Macmillan out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Jean.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: it's a a pleasure to have you here. I look forward to our conversation. We usually like to start off by asking our authors just to let our audience know a little bit more about themselves. Uh, So can you give a little bit of a, a background and particularly in relation to the topic of American democracy and Madisonian government?
1: So I think the best way to um, sort of encapsulate that is um, the fact that when I went to school uh, for both my undergraduate and one of my master's degrees, I went to school in Connecticut. And one of the most well-known political scientists in Connecticut at the time was a guy named E.E. Schatzschneider. And while I did not have the opportunity, unfortunately, to work with him so many of the faculty I did work with had been influenced by him and his work has sort of profoundly influenced um, my thinking in a way that I you know, don't think I actually realized until I sat down to write this book. Um, so, you know, E.E. Schatzneider is not somebody I agree with in terms of everything he had to say. But on some of the fundamental aspects of what he talked about, um, he's passed and he was at Wesleyan University when he was alive, have, you know, had this enormous influence and obviously not just on me, but so many people working on American government and politics. So I think as you think about my, my sort of upbringing, it was the fact that I happened to go to school in Connecticut and then got my PhD in Massachusetts. And there was sort of this group of people in those universities for whom E.E. Schatzschneider, you know, had this profound influence and I benefited from that to a certain extent. And, um, you know, when I was writing this book, it was, you know, so much of, of, of it had to do with sort of a conversation with E.E. Schatschneider. And I think I learned more about him writing this book than I had even as a student when I had studied him.
0: Right, right. Okay. That, that's, um, that's fascinating. He, um, he, can you tell us a bit more uh, about him, in, uh, just, uh, you know, to, in terms of he was a kind of uh, a public activist and advocate, and uh, w- was he an academic as well, or, or was he just known mainly for his uh, public writing uh, as a public intellectual?
1: He, he was both. Um, you know, one of the, the fascinating things about Schatzschneider is he was a high school teacher before he went to teach at Wesleyan University, where he was for many, many years. And he was somebody who wrote in really, really colorful language and in very compelling command of the English language in a way that I think sort of breaks through the standard academic talk. Um, And he wrote many, many books. Probably his most famous are things like Party Government, The Struggle for Party Government, my personal favorite, the semi-sovereign people. He was also the chairman of the Committee on Political Parties, um, which wrote the influential report in 1950 called Toward a More Responsible Two-Party System. So he was very much engaged in both the discipline of political science and also in teaching, which was his, his love. And he taught undergraduates primarily, which is another part of this. And he wrote, you know, in a way that that, you know, people outside of academia um, could not only understand, but I think appreciate. So one of the things about what he was doing that really sort of encapsulates his his view, if you will, was his a statement he made um, to the student newspaper, actually, at Wesleyan. And he said this many times. What he said was. The most important thing I've done in my field is I've talked longer and harder and more persistently and enthusiastically about political parties than anyone else alive. And so, for anybody living in the 21st century, the idea that anybody would be waxing political—you know—waxing poetical about political parties may strike them as peculiar, because for most of us, political parties are seen as something to sort of disparage, look down at, corrupt institutions, ruining our system. And Schatzschneider had a completely different view of the import and role of political parties in a democratic state, and so that sort of encapsulates some of his view. And again, I don't agree with with you know everything he had to say, but when you look at his writing and and you understand the points he was making, it's profoundly moving, and it certainly has influenced me.
0: That that's very interesting about um, his focus on political parties and and uh, his. Sort of hope or positive view of it, as you said, you know, it, it's it's quite different and and, uh, and against most uh, most views. Uh, you know, upon reflection, when you say that, it's it's almost as if <clears throat> uh, American political science, in particular, has a has almost a kind of uh, you know anarchistic or libertarian sort of assumption and, and bent to it. Uh, w- would you agree?
1: I I think there is an argument to be made for that. You know, one of the things that um, another thing that Schatzneider and and others talk about when it comes to American government, but also American political science and the discipline itself is what he describes as the P problem, the problem with power. Um, We have never as a discipline and I think as a country stemming from our founding been able to grapple with the necessity of power in a governmental system and how it should be used and operated. And so much so, Schaffner argues, that we don't even in the discipline, we sort of shy away from talking about it. And I think this is something that, you know, is really important for anybody concerned about the state of American government today to understand and grapple with is is our longstanding, and I would say this goes back to the founding again, difficulty with the place and the import of power in our system and how it should operate.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because, I mean, as someone myself, I mean, who works outside of the American context and, uh, you know, in the Caribbean and then also kind of in a Commonwealth context, British Commonwealth, um, yeah, the idea of, of, of groups, of parties and so forth are so much m- more part of the academic discourse uh, but when you look at American political science, it, it's quite different. It's, it's the individual. It's always like the individual. So, yeah. So, so Schneider, um, his, his sort of way of thinking <clears throat> would be uh, perhaps probably more in alignment with, uh, with political science uh, around the world in that respect. I, I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, you know, uh, one, one thing he, he said quite often is that the central difficulty of the entire American system in particular, and he calls this the difficulty which causes all other difficulties, and and I do agree with that, is the fact that the government suffers from a deficiency of the power to govern. And this gets him to the solution, which is, uh, you know, uh, you can debate whether it's a good solution or not, Um, Of political parties, because he says we have a deficiency of the power to govern. We've never been able to effectively organize for government and governing. And I think as we look at where we are today in the 21st century, and to your earlier point, a lot of the frustration people feel with the American governmental system today, they attribute to the individuals in power, whether it's, you know, a president, President Biden, President Trump, Obama, Bush, you can go through the list, Congress. um, And what they fail to grapple with or to think about is the fact that it's structured in such a way that makes governing incredibly difficult, regardless of how angelic, to use Madison's phrase, the people in office may be. So, you know, that's one of the things I try to do in this book is to get people to see, you know, that the system is what one of the main things we should be focusing on. Um, One of the things I I wanted to uh, title this book, um, ripping off James Carver, old phrase, uh, It's the Economy Stupid. I wanted to title the book, It's the System Stupid, but Paul wasn't into that. So (laughs) they went with a better title. But I do think... um, you know, and not to be a reductionist, because there's many problems to talk about. But I do think one of the primary challenges we confront today is a structure in which governing, because we haven't grappled with how power should work in our system, has become incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think until we grapple with that, we will continue to face the problems we face today.
0: Yeah, that that's very interesting. And, and we definitely will get into it. But uh... But I I do want to pick your brain on this because I, I think it's 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 fascinating. Um, you know, we, we did talk about the individual and the importance of the individual in in the sort of uh, I don't know the meta narrative or or the assumptions or, 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 it's it's whatever the equivalent of historiography <laughs> would be for political science, um, uh, the individual being important, and, and I suppose even in in the normal discourse of, of, you know, of American politics. Yet, what is so strange for us on the outside is the way your political parties are entrenched in, in the system so officially. So like, you know, if if you are registered with one party or another, that's recorded by the state, and, and um, you know, so you're a registered Republican or a registered Democrat. That's that's very strange to us on the outside, um, you know. And this, the state sometimes would oversee, uh, if if I uh, understand correctly, you know, the you know in, in primaries and internal um, the political um, processes. So that that's kind of fascinating. The way uh, on the one hand parties are kind of ignored. Um, uh, in speaking about the individual. Yet, on the other hand, they are so, so entrenched in this kind of two-party system. I, I don't know if that has any sort of relevance to to the questions that you ask in the book.
1: It, it, it does. You know, one of the, the strange things about of the many things about American government, like all systems, have their oddities, is that we are almost of two minds when it comes to political parties. And this goes back well before the founding, but certainly at the founding. On the one hand, everybody speaks ill of political parties. So you have, you know, George Washington's famous farewell address where he warns about political parties. You can look at quotes from everybody from Thomas Jefferson to Jane Madison to all of them. They look down at political parties and yet almost immediately when the, the country is, is built and under our current constitution, they turn to political parties as a vehicle for getting things done in government. And of course they do that because they had, and, and primarily this would be at the hands of James Madison, although not exclusively, they had built a system w- in which governing was almost impossible because they had dispersed power so much. And then they got into uh, you know, a system in which they wanted to get things done and they couldn't get them done unless people organized together in political parties and had a reason to work together. So this sort of duality of these views of political parties has sustained us throughout American history. We see parties as corrupt and corrupting organizations, and yet we are almost wholly dependent on them to get anything done. I mean, you and I are talking right now in what is known as infrastructure summer in the United States as Congress grapples with how to pass an infrastructure bill through Congress, and they still haven't done it yet, and we'll see if they do it. But it is one of many examples where in the absence of political parties, it's almost impossible to imagine these over 500 people in Congress coming together to pass very needed and necessary infrastructure reform. Um, Now, with the parties, it's no assurance either that we're going to get it done. But so we are on the one hand sort of with our framers and looking down on them. And on the other hand, with our framers and saying they're a necessity. And I think, you know, Schatzneider is one of the many people political scientists have said for a long time that in a system this fractured, you need an organization like a political party or something else to bring people together in an organized fashion to get things done in the interest of the people. So to your point, I think this goes back, you know, over 200 years in the American system.
0: Right. Right. Now in, in your book, um, what, what is very central to it is, um, you, you talk about looking at the problem and the crisis of American democracy by going upstream. And and I, I guess, uh, you know, when you're talking about looking at the system uh, and, and, and even discovering if, if, I mean, I would put it that way in terms of sort, sort of discovering the problem of, of that, even the, the very necessity of power, you know, be, uh, be, be becomes a, a a problem to to examine uh, in the system. Uh, I, is that what you mean by, by going upstream? And, and, and even uh, part of that question I want to ask is, well, so what made you start to to think, you know, so what got you interested academically and or otherwise, could be, could have been personally, I'm not sure, but in the crisis of American democracy, and then instead of all those sort of regular solutions or, or, or ways of at- understanding the problem, you know, you you know, became convinced that it's going upstream.
1: So I think one of the things was... Um as we look in the modern era, and certainly today, um, and I, when you asked me about my background, one thing I didn't mention is I'm a pollster by training. So mm. I, I worked at the the, the Roper organization um, and um, the Roper Center, as they call it. And so I was trained as a pollster. And when you look at public opinion polling, one of the um, sort of sad um, polls that we see and are sort of have to watch every year is a poll on the amount of trust people have in the government. And since, you know, the 1970s, late, late 60s, early 1970s, that number has gone down dramatically. So early on um, in the mid 20th century, about the time when Schatzschneider was writing, of Americans would regularly say they trust the government to do what's right and what's in their best interest. As we move through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century, that number now stands at a historic low of 25%, and it has for some time. You know, a system in which only a quarter of Americans believe that the government can be trusted is problematic and of course we do see certain blips around 9-11 with the sort of patriotism that ensued there was a blip up and then it dropped down again Um, and those are the kinds of numbers that as a pollster you know many of us look at and say what accounts for this dramatic decrease in trust in government and for me one of the obvious sort of practical aspects of this is that the government doesn't do either what it says it's going to do or what the public wants and needs. And you know, I could give you one example just because I looked at it recently and I've mentioned this in the book. In the early 1980s, um, a treasury secretary, uh, Douglas Dillon was asked to go to Tufts University and give a commencement address. And I'm looking back at this address and What he says is so striking because his main argument is his concern that in the early 1980s, so this would have been in the Reagan era, that the government was failing to do many things that the public wanted and were needed. And one of the many issues he gives as an example is gun violence. He says it's unconscionable that in the early 1980s, the U.S. federal government has failed to enact gun control legislation, despite this enormous gun violence we had in the country at that time, and polling, which showed that three quarters of Americans wanted sensible gun control. And that's striking for me as a pollster, because we always hear sort of anecdotally in the press that Americans don't agree on things, that there's a wide variety of disagreement, everybody's fighting. That's actually not the case. There is a widespread agreement on many things, and sensible gun control legislation is one of them. He's saying that in 1982. By the time I wrote this book, as you get into sort of the 21st century, nine of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in the United States had occurred, the deadliest in 2017, killing of 58 people in Las Vegas, and then, of course, the deplorable 2012 killing of children at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And Americans look at these kinds of numbers and we've gotten close many times to getting federal legislation on gun control. We have the most violent society in the world almost today as you look among the nations of the world. And yet the government has done nothing to address it at the federal level. And so when I looked at that, what I see is not a lack of agreement amongst Americans or a lack of will at the individual level amongst our public officials, but rather a government which is by design structured to be so dispersed, power is so dispersed in our system that even when there's agreement, the government, it has a difficult time doing anything. And we used to say, even when I was in grad school, the one time the American government will come together to do things is in a time of crisis. And that has generally held to be true, but I was writing this book during the pandemic and there were many times during the pandemic and it continues today, that despite hundreds of thousands of people dying and sick, the government had difficulty coming together to do what was necessary. And to me, you can certainly look at individuals who bear blame for individual things, but to me it is a structural problem which requires a structural response. And so that's really what I explore in this book. Why do we have a government that's structured not to do basic things that are necessary and most people agree are needed? And what can be done to address that? And and of course, I think part of the answer lies at the feet of our framers who structured the system the way it is on purpose, because they had interests that coalesced with this and so i think we have to be honest about what our framers were doing and why and you know i always hesitate to you know say anything that i was going to think people say i'm speaking ill of the framers um because i'm not but i do think we have to be honest about the system that created and sort of the repercussions of that system today
0: right right well that takes us i mean straight into Madisonian government and whatnot but before we get there i i would like to hear your reflections on on this change that happened in the 1970s where trust um fell dramatically um so that you know that that um because the the structure of government didn't change during that period as far as I'm aware uh, so did something else change and 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 um I mean, now Schneider was writing in the mid 20th century before this this trust fell, and and he would have been speaking about some of the same structural problems. But um, but this uh, decline in trust in the in the 1970s, I, I suppose. How, um, you know, so sort of how, how did, did that merely exacerbate uh, an underlying problem? Uh, did it create a new one or, and, and, and what do you think behind it? Was it a cultural shift? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, even Reagan's rise to, you know, and, and I suppose, um, uh, Goldwater and, you know, that kind of, uh, I guess, libertarian John Birch almost kind of, uh, side of things, uh, very individualistic, um, uh, you know, the, the, and, and, you know, what was reagan's um famous thing the, the 10 most dangerous words or something i trust me i'm from the government or something like that i can't yeah. remember it exactly but but uh, is what's your uh thinking on that
1: and by the way in saying that reagan does beautifully sort of embody the views of many of our framers and i think that's something that we have to um be cognizant of it's such a good question you know sort of what explains the, the decline in trust. And I think it's a complicated question. So I'm always hesitant to, um, you know, sort of pin it on one issue. So I want to say that upfront because I think there's a lot of research to be done in this and it's complicated, Mm -hmm. but I, I can give you some ideas that I have. Um, and certainly it deserves a lot and has had a lot of exploration from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I do think that, um, We have in this country failed to have a conversation about, and this goes back long before these polls started to decline, but I think it's been exacerbated in the, it was exacerbated in the 20th century. What do we view as the role of government? Um, And so I think any institution, there needs to be sort of a general agreement on what the mission or the goal, if you will, of that system is that influences how you structure it. And of course, what it can then do and what it it, it cannot do. I think we have ignored that conversation. um, And that has played part of a role in this. I think certainly technological developments and changes play a critical role in this. I also believe that as you look at um, things in the 20th century dealing with the organization of politics. So One example is in the 1960s, we saw into the early 1970s, the democratization of the political parties. And so we moved from a system of caucuses to a system of primaries as a result of the debacle on the democratic side in the 1968 Mm
0: -hmm. convention.
1: And the result of that was something that most people applaud, which is that in a democracy, You want to give power to the people. And in this case, the power given was the ability to have a outsized role in the nomination of the public officials for president and and in particular. And the flip side of that, though, is that participation in primaries in the United States are deplorably low. The people who do tend to participate are people who are Much more active and extreme on either side. And of course, what happens then is you diminish the role of the party elite in the process of choosing their own nominees and you hand that over to the masses. But of course, it's not really the masses. It's about, you know, 10, 20% who come out to vote in the primaries. That I think played a critical role in getting us where we've gotten in 2016, 2020, and so on. Mm -hmm. You've now got presidential candidates appealing to the most extreme aspects of our politics. But you also then have things like gerrymandering. So, so many of those factors, I think, have contributed to what I believe is a frustration amongst the American public that they go out and vote, if they do, for somebody to come in office and do something and fulfill promises, and the person cannot do that. And our system is rife with that. You know, I remember how excited people were when Barack Obama was elected, yes, You know, obviously Democrats, not Republicans. And yet many felt deeply, deeply wounded by the time we got to the midterm election of 2010 and 2012, even though he won in 2014, that he hadn't done what he promised to do. And he's not alone. This is sort of the story of the American presidency throughout the modern era. So that contributes, I think, to an overall sense of frustration. But I also, again, wouldn't would also just underscore the technological changes. Social media has not helped this. So there's so many complicated factors like Mm -hmm. that. For me, I I focus on one in particular, which is sort of the basic one. If your government cannot keep you safe and keep you, um, you know, shovel the snow, for example, if you live Mm -hmm. in a city, you're going to be frustrated with them. And that's, I think, something that we see throughout the American system today, as these government officials usually, in many cases, can't do what they want to do or promise to do, and voters are left with a sense of real frustration that I think is brimming over today.
0: Right. Interesting. So, yeah, so um, so really, uh, you know, to get back to Madisonian government, I mean, that's in the title of your book that palgrave suggested i i now learned (laughs) um, uh yeah but but it's it's obviously central to your analysis and um you know and 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 in in the the discussion of of gun control i I think it you know that's probably a, a a very uh you know illustrative example um because i i know you mentioned in your book that you know in in that system Minorities, uh, or, or the power of voice of minorities, are extremely elevated, and the government can't even follow the good kinds of majorities, etc. Et so I, um, but I'd like you to to explain, you know, the concept of Madisonian government and and why it's so important and central.
1: Yes, it, it's it is really fascinating, um, and you know, James Madison is known as the father of our Constitution, the U.S. Constitution because he played such an important role in coming to the convention with a draft in hand, which is unremarkable for a man of his young age. And that was used, Um, it was certainly changed a good deal. And a lot of the people at the convention had a role in in rewriting it. And a lot of decisions were made that he wouldn't have agreed with, but we still think of him as the father of the constitution. And one of the key sort of gifts that Madison gave us um, is reflected in how the system was structured. And he really did follow Montesquieu with this um, notion that we needed to separate power. And he, you know, takes Montesquieu and he puts him on steroids. And the reason that Madison is so intent, and it's not just Madison, but the reason that the framers are so intent on dispersing and separating power is something that you can only understand if you look back at our first Constitution, which is the Articles of Confederation. Obviously we fought the Revolutionary War, um, you know, with, with the help of a lot of, of people. We uh, They won, they set up this first Constitution which was a Confederation, which was a system and we still see them today, whether it's the UN or the EU or other systems in which Power is very minimal at the center and it's dispersed to the member parts. And Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton and all the framers were living in this system for less than a decade when they realized that this was not the system they wanted to live in and they worked to get a new convention and to write a new constitution. The reason that they did that was because of the enormous um, fear that they had that any system in which power was vested in these state legislatures, these state legislatures were too easily prone to be taken over by ignorant masses, and they wanted to pull some of that power to the center. And so that's one of the main impetuses they have for going to the convention, is to sort of move power to the center in this new government, if you will, take some of the power from those member parts. Um, And that's sort of the big battle between the federalists who supported the the Constitution and the the anti-federalists who opposed it. Um, And why did they want to do that? For the framers, it all got down to liberty. And for them, liberty was freedom from government, not just freedom generally, but freedom for government from government. Liberty is, you know, something, you know, so critical to our system. And Montesquieu said the best way to protect liberty is to separate power. And so they followed him in doing that. But one of the things I don't think we recognize often enough, unless we look closely at Madison, is that the liberty that they prized the most was the liberty to own property. These were middle-class, upper-middle-class, educated men at the convention. They were very, very fearful that the first thing those masses that took over those 13 state legislatures were going to do was what? Take property. And they were very fearful of that. That's a big reason they go to the convention, and that's a big reason they structure the system as they do, to make sure that they're going to try to do two things at once, centralize power more at the central level, but ensure that if the masses get control of this government, they aren't able to take the property, the economic liberty, as you will, of, of, of the people and in who has economic, uh, you know, who has the economy, who has property is, of course, the middle class and the wealthy. Um, and, you know, Charles Beard gets hit very hard for writing his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he there's a lot of criticism there. And a lot of people look at sort of the view of this, of the framers as sort of sacrosanct um, and sort of poking holes in in what they see is as, you know, um, this golden age. And certainly, you know, I I revere the founders. But you look at the words that Madison wrote, and it is very clear that he prized economic liberty, the liberty to own property above all else. And it's for that reason that they disperse power as much as they do in the system. And Madison was very famous for saying something that you just quoted Ronald Reagan saying many, many years later, you know, government was sort of a necessary evil for Madison. It was necessary to keep the masses at bay, but it was an evil if you, if it got turned over to them. So he had to try to walk this line. So for them, the government shouldn't be doing much. And I always tell students that, you know, the framers structured the system exactly the way they wanted. And it works remarkably that way today. And so it works the way they designed it, which was not to do too much, except to protect us from external attack, internal insurrection, and a few other things. Other than that, they didn't want it doing much. And part of my argument is that is fine in 1787. By the time you get to the 21st century, many Americans have a very different view of government. You just look at people like, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. These people have a very different view of what the government should be doing. We have to have that discussion and come to an agreement because if we feel the government should be doing more, we've got to restructure the system to do that. Otherwise, we will we will continue to have a frustrated public.
0: Right. So so that's, that's very interesting that it is, in, in a sense, you're saying, it's not that the system isn't working. The system is working. And that's kind of the problem. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, that's no, that's exactly right. It's working the way it was designed to work. And that is not to say, by the way, people always, you know, ask about what Madison or Jefferson would think today, um, you know, and I don't really go down that path. But that's not to say if they were living in 2021, that they would have written the Constitution the same way today. In 1787, this made sense to them. They came out of a revolutionary war they wanted to give people the ability to have a say in the government. After their experience in the articles, they didn't want those people to have too much say or so much that they can then take the property and the freedom and the liberty of other people. And so they're sort of always walking this tightrope between sort of how you design that. And for Madison, it was all about separating and dispersing power. And he did that much more than Montesquieu ever instructed. So we not only get separation of powers, we get checks and balances. We have federalism. There is dispersion all over our system. But what's lost when you disperse power is what Schatzschneider is talking about, is the ability to get things done, the ability to govern. And so that's sort of where I think we need to have a conversation. Because while I too prize liberty, I also prize responsiveness in a democracy. That, the government should be responsive to the people who are sovereign and it should be accountable to the people. And in our system, I argue those three things are out of whack. We have prized liberty to such an extent that responsiveness and accountability are not getting their, their fair due. And so I you know, sort of argue for a sort of thinking about that again to see if this is really how we want to balance those three scales.
0: Right, so these are really fundamental, basic questions about the system itself, from the foundation. So, yeah, I I can see how there could be a a structural difficulty even uh, talking about about these issues in terms of uh, reform. But, um, and and we will get to that. But, but I I, I just about the thinking behind it as well. So, it's it's pretty obvious, I think, uh, to. You know, see your difference with those people who analyze things in terms, uh, analyze the problems of democracy in terms of individuals, whether it be Trump or Bush or, or I don't know, maybe Obama or, or what, whatever, who, whoever they might blame, or Clinton or. or um, so you're saying, you know, you know, we need to get beyond the individuals and so forth, and that's pretty clear. Uh, now, I was just thinking while you were talking. Um, that there's a kind of not, another school of thought, which is, I suppose, not really part of, of formal academia so much, uh, but really it is part of American political discourse. And um, that also, I think, similar to you perhaps, um, speaks about the powerlessness of governments and certainly the powerlessness of elected officials. But, you know, but they talk about the deep state, right, or the permanent state or the military-industrial complex or something. So, so that there is this sort of uh, permanent governing class that, um, that undermines the um, elected officials and, and so that, uh, you know, elections are a fraud and they're a scam because really, you know, you have this permanent ruling class. So you, so you have that sort of view on, on the one hand. Uh, which is both on the right and the left you know from a Chomsky and left I suppose uh, or to a to a radical right and um, but that's very different from from your interpretation was that the, that the government was in a sense designed to be powerless because it was never um, because governmental power was not seen as actually a public good but a necessary evil um, but but do you want to you know maybe make a comment on that sort of a deep state permanent ruling class idea whether of the right or left
1: yeah i think it is intimately involved and and i don't get into this enough in the book but you know in my mind sort of a fundamental reality is that power will reside somewhere and the question is where and so you know we are as as uh, over the last you know 48 hours or so um, we've seen, you know, the United States withdraw from Afghanistan. You know, power will uh, erupt over there and, and, and somebody will assume the mantle. You know, and so if you look at our system, I think it's not a surprise that you have sort of this, you know, whatever <laughs> deep state, whatever you want to call it, um, because power is going to reside somewhere. And that's what I mean when I talk about, to a certain extent, about the problem of accountability. Um, What happens in a system in which power is so dispersed is that nobody is accountable. And so as a voter in the United States, you're asked to go to the polls quite frequently and to say, does this person or this party deserve another term or should we throw them out and put somebody else in? It's really, really tough to make that decision if you don't know who's accountable for what has or what hasn't happened. So that lack of accountability is part and parcel of this entire sort of deep state. Governments have to, at their core, exercise power. It doesn't have to be total power, but they've gotta get things done. If they aren't empowered or structured to do that, they will get done in other ways. And the people who are getting them done will not be accountable to the American public or any other democratic public. And so, you know, I, I do read Chomsky. I, I I teach him and and other people, and you know, certainly I differ with them a good deal. but I think there is something that resonates with this idea that power will find a place to reside and will rear its ugly head. The question is, can we hold that that power base accountable? And the answer is no in our type of system.
0: Right. And I suppose this is where the political parties come in, isn't it?
1: That's absolutely true. You know, uh, one of the arguments that, you know, the Committee for Responsible Parties and Schatzschneider and a bunch of other people, because he certainly wasn't alone, um, made um, is not that political parties are the greatest organizations and we should all be applauding them. They could certainly do a lot better. And that's why they wanted them to be more responsible. But the basic argument was, is that these are the types of organizations that we need in a system this dispersed. So the power resides in a structure that people can hold accountable. Um, And, you know, I often ask students, you know, if you don't like political parties, where what type of organization, you know, think big, like, You know, what's another type of organization that could fill the role that parties play? Um, And, you know, you can think of media organizations. That's hard in a capitalist system because they are, you know, motivated by the necessity of earning money. Um, Interest groups, which E.E. Schachneider talks about. There's a lot of other types of organizations out there. Um, The framers and people like E.E. Schatzschneider and others decided that at least to date, the, part, the organization best able to do this is the political party. Um, and so that argument, I think, is one that we have to think about. There is a reason that political parties grew and the same framers who wrote the Constitution turned to them immediately. And that was because of the necessity of a party in a system this fractured.
0: Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, when, you keep, when you talk about these things, I, I mean, for, for me, I'm it always brings back uh, the distinction between uh, you know the athenian democracy which is you know a, a, at this sort of um, idealistic heart of, of western political science and political philosophy which was you know a society of you know 20,000 40,000 i think at the most um, where every uh, adult male who owned property was um, was in the assembly and everybody spoke for themselves and and and, and there's you know that kind of uh, ideal there, and then representative democracy of you know in, in modern states of uh, hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, they didn't even have elections for representatives in Athenian democracy. That was that would have been absurd. But um, I, that that sort of uh, you know the ideal of Athenian democracy, but the reality of representative democracy. I, I, I think there's some sort of tension uh, there. Would you agree?
1: There is. And of course, you know, in Federalist 10, James Madison explains in great detail and in other places, but Federalist 10 most famously, why the framers decided to move away from a direct or a pure or, you know, the Athenian type of democracy and adopt a Republican or a representative system. And he goes, and you just mentioned size, size was one of the key reasons that he made this case, just for the practical reason in 1780s, 1790s, where was everybody going to gather together and do these science, science types of things? And of course, pure, direct democracies, they really don't work well over an extended state, and they certainly don't work well with a large, diverse population. Um, And so that has been, you know, certainly something that we have to think about. You know, you were asking about the decline in, in trust in the 20th century. One thing I didn't mention was, you know, in it's only in the early 20th century that women in the United States get the right to vote. We're into the 1950s, really 60s, 70s before African-Americans really get the right to fully participate in some, you know, not even fully perhaps today. So these, this extension of the franchise is happening throughout American history and rightly so that's not what the framers had envisioned or were dealing with in the, you know, certainly at the convention with the three fifths compromise and other things. So all of those factors play a role here. Um, And, you know, I always tell students that, you know, one of the things that one of the reasons the Athenian men property owning could sit together all day and talk about politics and make decisions was because they had women and slaves and other people at home doing, doing all the work, keeping the economy running. That's not how we operate today. You know, we're talking about a very, very different world, thankfully. And so the structure of the system has to change Accordingly. And, you know, just if one of the things that I think it's important to think about that the political parties at their best can do well is they can help give people cues as to who they want to vote for. In the American system, we are called to vote very often and we have very long ballots. And oftentimes we go to the polls and you don't know every person listed on this ballot and who they're running, what they think and believe. Political parties give us cues and say, this person's a Democrat or Republican. This is generally where they sit or stand. That's one of the important things that political parties help voters do because we are busy with our lives and other things. We don't have time to investigate every individual running and to make a solid decision. So those are the types of things that political parties can do to keep the system working and then let us know who to hold accountable when it's not. That's when it, they work well, and they haven't worked well for some time. But that's sort of one of the arguments that the sort of responsible governance party folks would make.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've talked a lot in this interview about the uh, the analysis part, but you do have a lot of recommendations uh, in your book as well. Uh, so could you just you know briefly just go over you know some of the main things that you think need to be rethought about American democracy and government?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's really a couple sort of possibilities here. Um, and one is um, to um, sort of uh, rewrite parts of the Constitution to restructure the system. And the, the, the sort of changes that I focus on have to do, not surprisingly, after we've been talking, with mitigating or minimizing the amount of division in the system. So how do you do that? This would be done either via constitutional amendment, or it would be done via extra constitutional means. These would be things like um, making political parties more responsible, or changing laws, or abolishing, say, the filibuster in the US Senate that's gotten so much attention today. So, you know, you can make What I'm talking about are structural reforms to diminish the divisions of power. They can be made constitutionally or they can be made extra constitutionally. Um, The challenge of making them constitutionally is, number one, over 230 years, 40 years later, we've never had any real structural amendments to our constitution, in part because it's so hard to pass a constitutional amendment. And so that's probably not something that we would see happening anytime soon. And that moves you towards this sort of extra constitutional reforms. And this is why people like Schachneider and others focus on making the parties more responsible or electoral reforms that decrease split ticket voting or changing state and party rules like the movement to primaries, getting rid of the filibuster. So, you know, an effort to condense power in, it, in its many forms would be what I'm talking about. And one of the things I do in the book, and this has been done quite frequently, is I go through the history of reforms in this area. And the history is long. I am not the first, certainly, person to talk about this. This goes back almost to the founding, where you have, you know, very smart people, talking about the need to address this problem and what should be done to fix it. You know, people like Joseph Story, people like former President Woodrow Wilson, who also happened to be a political scientist himself. There's a whole history of reform advocates here.
0: And but, if I'm not, you know, and if I remember, you know, a point you make in your book is that the founders themselves, when they found themselves to be administrators and, um, and you know, governing officials, also... Kind of uh, came up against the the limitations that they themselves put in their own constitution. Is that correct?
1: That is, you know, one of my favorite favorite quotes is, um, you know, James Madison could write the Constitution, but he couldn't govern under it. You know, James Madison famously had a horrible presidency, um, and uh, because, and that's not just him. It is very, very difficult to be president of the United States and get things done. To have an energetic presidency is very hard in this system. And, you know, so James Madison wrote this, and then had to govern under it. And he came face to face with what is the difficulty of really doing that. And the difficulties are profound. And of course, Woodrow Wilson, who I just mentioned, is another person who confronted that difficulty head on. Um, And so, you know, there is a whole sort of fascinating history of the need to restructure the government and that history is deserving of attention. The problem is, is that, um, and Woodrow Wilson was one of the people who talked about this, is that anytime you start to talk about structural reform, people's eyes sort of glaze over. It's like almost nothing's as boring as talking about restructuring the, the government and the rules of the game, so to speak. I find it fascinating. Most people find it boring. And so, It's that aspect of it that has to be addressed. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson, as a even a young man calling for these kinds of reforms, recognized the difficulty. He he said, you know, it's it's going to be far easier to make changes. And it wasn't easy, like, you know, expansion of civil rights, for instance. Then it's going to be restructuring this system because at least civil rights is something that people can grasp onto, that there's sort of an emotional attachment to something like that. When I sit down and say to students, OK, let's talk about, you know, of the system, you know, that's not the kind of sort of sexy topic that people want to just, you know, grasp into. And that's going to be a difficult hurdle to sort of, you know, surmount. Yeah. And it's proved to be because, again, this writing, this history goes back many, many decades, um, hundreds of years, and yet it's never sort of caught on in the popular conscience.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so, so, um, so, I mean, you, you've, I guess, set yourself a, a very difficult uh, uphill task. How, how, how do you see that? Because, I mean, I know. Uh, you know, y- you don't see this as as merely uh, an academic theoretical exercise. I mean, you you really want to see some sort of changes uh, in place. I mean, so so do you see this as something like you know a a decades long process? A uh, you know uh, um you know wh- what might be some of the short wins? You know the short term uh, wins or, or can anything really be done in the short term? Could, could it only be a, a mid- or long-term type of reform effort? What, what's your thinking on that?
1: You know, it depends on um, what types of reforms uh, that we could possibly, um, you know, move forward on. So something like the Afra said, you know, getting rid of the filibuster, there's a lot more sort of support for something like that than there would be a, a you know, a more... Um, difficult restructuring that because that would be a rule in the Senate that you could change. That's not a constitutional requirement, of course.
0: Um,
1: A constitutional requirement, you know, it's almost unthinkable to me today that we could actually sort of get enough support. It's so difficult. You have to have so much support to get a constitutional amendment passed. Um, I I can't imagine we could do that today. So anything that requires an amendment, I think at this point we are hard pressed to uh, sort of imagine that would happen in the short term or the medium term. I'm not even certain the long term, but you know, what I can tell you is that there is a real danger here. And this is something that I can't underscore enough. When you have a government that is not meeting people's basic needs for healthcare, you know, protection from gun violence, um, protection from a pandemic, whatever the case may be, there's so many issues on the left, right, and center, immigration reform, whatever it is. If the government is unable to act and frustration continues to mount, the real fear is that violence erupts and change comes not the way I and most thinking people and peaceful people would like it, which would be through amendment or structure or legal change. It comes through violence. Um, And one of the things I looked back on, and I I, I wrote about this in the book, was um, in 1968, obviously one of the most violent years in American history, the New York Times asked a group of scholars to come together and answer the question, is America by nature a violent society? And of course, there's a lot of literature on that. Um, And a lot of people have very different views on whether it is a violent society or not. But there is a fairly compelling argument to be made that change in our system, real fundamental change has to date pretty much only happened as a result of violence. And if that is the case, that is something to be obviously feared and something to be sort of understood and addressed. Um, And my real concern, again, is that that is what we are in the short, medium, or long term, headed towards in this system. Um, You know, I remember very early on a professor saying something that always stuck with me, which was that, you know, people don't want to talk about it, but governments must exercise some power. If they don't, they will be impotent and they won't survive. And they will disintegrate. They will be unable to do because that's what they do. And our system, I think, is getting dangerously close to not being able to address power to the extent that it is responsive to basic needs of the people. That'll leave the people eventually frustrated. And if violence is the result of that, I would not be surprised by that. And that's why we need to have thinking people talk about change before we get to that point.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a very fundamental and, and deep question, you know, a question, uh, you know, Coming to terms with power, you know, and, and I mean, e- even at a you know at, at a personal level, uh, you know, that's something I I've had to do, uh, you know, both theoretically and and personally, because you know there is such a a kind of um, I, I I guess a bias if you want to put it that way, but 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 this this sort of fear of power itself, or or, or this kind of uh, aversion to it, or you know that that it's seen as as an evil. Um, you know, and, and it's part of the it's part of the culture um, in so many ways. That um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a formidable, formidable task. You know, very philosophical as well. You know, I suppose. You know, it even gets like into Foucauldian um, philosophy and stuff like that, to Nietzschean kind of.
1: Thing. Well, that's right, and and you know, I think it's particularly pronounced in post-colonial states like ours. Um, We rightly so, as do most colonial states around the world, um, and not exclusively, but I think it is particularly, um, you know, sort of a characteristic of post-colonial states that we are rightly, you know, concerned about any exercise of power. And that is absolutely understandable. and, And, you know, we always have to guard against power being exercised in a way that is, you know, a violation of fundamental rights and liberties of the people, you know, on the flip side, of course, and there's always a flip side, if the government is structured, so it doesn't act at all, then what will come about is violence and anarchy, and you are not any safer in that kind of system either. So Mm -hmm. some kind of balance has to be struck in that sort of the challenge of democracies, right, is to find a balance between the exercise of governmental power and the protection of freedoms and liberties for all its people. And I have to say, I think our framers did a remarkable job in constructing our system to try to find a balance. But what they also said repeatedly was that they did the best they could. It wasn't perfect and it had to be revisited and reconfigured for each generation and that's where i think not the framers but we have sort of failed ourselves in part because they made it hard to restructure but you know we have failed to have that conversation and to restructure it and that to me is a very very dangerous sort of reality um one of my i I love uh, talking about the founders and one of my fa- my favorite founders is a guy named Governor Morris. And I live in New York and work in New York. And he was a New Yorker and a very sort of colorful character. He had one leg. He um, was yeah. quite a woman's uh, a ladies man. And, <laughs> you know, he was the most talkative member of the convention. But at one point, he wrote to one of his friends shortly before he died about the Constitution. And I quote this in the book. He said, nothing human can be perfect. Surrounded by difficulties, we did the best we could leaving it with to those who should come after us to take counsel from experience and exercise prudently the power of amendment. And that to me really, really resonates. And that I think is where um, we have to sort of focus our attention. What needs to be amended? What needs to be revised? We don't need to throw the whole thing out. What needs to be amended and revised and how and move in that direction which is exactly what our framers did after 10 years under the articles of confederation rather than wait for frustration to boil over into violence and then we do not have the ability to think about what we're going to be doing
0: right right well we've uh, we've hit the 1 hour mark so uh, we you know i could talk to you f- uh, forever about these things that i think is fascinating as well but, um, you know, what, to round it off, I suppose, what closing thoughts would you like to leave your readers with and, and our listeners with as well?
1: You know, I, I would like to uh, start a conversation about how people view the role of our government, uh, where what the structure is, why it's that way, and how it should be changed to meet the reality of the 21st century. Um, you know, this is something President Biden has been talking a lot about as he sort of defines um, the clash of, his, as he says, of our the 21st century is the clash between autocracy and democracy. Some of this resonates with that. But I do think we have to have a, a conversation about that. And I, I, I think part of it is sort of recognizing that need to sort of move beyond the sort of um, left-right divide as we critique. The system, and think about the system itself. Um, I have no problem with critiquing public figures; I do it all the time. But that's not the only aspect of our system that deserves critique. Um, it is not all about, as we've talked about, the individuals in office. It's about the offices they occupy, and restructuring those. You know, one of the one of the people I like to quote is Peter Drucker, and he talks about the fact if you know if you have somebody in a job, because he's talking about business, and you get pretty smart, you know, relatively successful people in a job, and they are all failing at it or not living up to expectation, maybe you don't need to change the person in office, maybe you need to change the job itself, you need to rethink it. And, you know, one of my uh, favorite political scientists uses that to make the case about the American presidency, it may not be that we are just getting bad people in office who are incapable of doing the job. It may be the job itself needs to be reconfigured. And again, that's, I, I I take that from somebody else who, who's himself a wonderful politician, um, and a a wonderful political scientist. And those are the conversations I, I would love to have, but having them is of course the challenge. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, any sort of thoughts on how we can have that conversation in the United States and around the world today, I think it's really important. And I would say these conversations, by the way, about structure, as you know, firsthand are not just relevant to the U.S. They're relevant to all systems because we are living in a structure and that structure has a huge impact wherever you are on what does and does not happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, a very good um Uh, Sort of analogy with Drucker, I'm going to steal that and use it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and I should say I I steal it, and it's not mine. Michael Genovese, a great political scientist in his own right and presidential scholar, who I stole it from. So I'm giving it to you. (laughs) And I hope I didn't misquote him, but he he says it better. uh, So I'll send you the quote. But it's a it's a really brilliant thought, and and I think it's it's really important.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. So um, before we leave, I just want to know, are there <clears throat> any other projects that you're working on right now that you'd like our audience to know about?
1: Well, absolutely. I am I'm working on two right now. Um, one has to do with this sort of, what I just sort of alluded to, which is the battle for the 21st century and the, the clash between autocracy and democracy. So I'm in the early stages of sort of working on that. And then I'm also going sort of, to another part of the world. Some of my work is on, um, you know, other post-colonial states, if you will, but, um, I'm doing some work, um, as it pertains to comparisons between the sort of pre-partition Pakistan and the creation of of Pakistan as it comes out of British, uh, you know, British India and the United States, because there's some of the work I'm doing is involves, um, sort of the 1930s, early 1940s in in British India, and what has been so remarkable to me as I've looked at some of their forgotten founders, and we all have forgotten founders, um, is that there is some sort of real points of comparison between their experience many, many years later and our experience in the U.S. So I'm working on some of that and and hoping to be able to put, uh, I've done a couple articles on some, some of their forgotten founders, but going to be putting together some more comparisons in terms of you know how they handled um a situation that was analogous to ours in some ways and in other ways very very different and sort of what are the lessons from those if you will
0: wow that sounds fascinating i look forward to that thank well, you well, thanks so much for this interview it's really been informative and enjoyable
1: well yeah thank you so much i've really enjoyed talking to you and i really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Once again, the book is American Democracy in Crisis The Case for Rethinking Madisonian Government, published this year in 2021 by Palgrave Macmillan. And we've been speaking to the author, Gene Sheehan. It's been a pleasure. So thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.